Is the lighting different or am I just spacing out or what? There we go. Tell you, don't be messing with me. There's a cer- I mean, if I get used to a certain way and uh, then it's not that way, what am I going to do? I'm going to lock up. John chapter 11, while I'm dealing with my trial, you keep turning. Um, life is so hard for me. If you're visiting with us this morning, on Sunday morning we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And, and as I've said even in recent weeks, we find ourselves wonderfully immersed in John chapter 11. And we want to pick things up in verse 17. I'll read out loud if you join with me in your hearts and we'll head through verse 44. And so when Jesus came, that is to the city of Bethany, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around, uh, had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning the death of their brother. And then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. And as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. And then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She's going to the tomb to weep there. And then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him? And some of them said, could not this man have op- who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay across it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you? that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. They took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave cloths, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to those nearby, Loose him and let him go. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the perfection that it is, not only in its content, 
but in its proportion to which you deal with all of the subjects that are found in it. And Lord, we just pray as we do so often that every thought and intent of yours behind your including this miracle of Jesus in the Bible, everything that it's intended to accomplish in our lives, in our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, we pray that by the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit that those things would be accomplished in our lives. We don't want to listen to your word, Lord, as we would listen to a lecture or listen to a speech. We want to hear you, Lord, and we want to hear your voice, and we want to understand the things that you're saying and have them bless our hearts and our spirits today to build up our minds and bless our minds also. So we look to you for this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. John chapter 11 is one of the most famous and one of the most beloved chapters in all of the Bible as it records Jesus' great miracle in raising a friend of his by the name of Lazarus from the dead. And one of the reasons that this chapter is so precious to God's people all through the ages is not only because it is a great uh, narrative on the uh, demonstration of God's power, though we're thankful for that, but it, it is also a passage that speaks to us greatly of of the heart of God for mankind, and especially when we find ourselves in uh, some of the most vulnerable positions that we'll find ourselves in life. This morning I want to look at three specific things from this passage. Number one, Jesus' declaration concerning himself in verses 25 and 26, his tears in verse 35, and then finally the miracle itself in verses 38 through 40. Allow me to set the stage a little bit before we head into those things. In the city of Bethany, there lived a family that was very, very special to Jesus. The family constituted two sisters and a brother who lived in the same house. The sisters were named Martha and Mary, and the brother's name was Lazarus. They lived in a city called Bethany. And Bethany was about two miles away at that time from the city of Jerusalem. Now the cities have almost grown together if you go to Israel today. Jesus, when he would go to the city of Jerusalem in order to minister there or to be there during one of the feasts, he didn't go in there and rent a hotel room or anything like that. Most often, as we read that he would head into that southern part of Israel and into Jerusalem itself, that he was invited by this family and they would love to host him. And so there's great intimacy here between Jesus and this family. There's great affection and, and there's great love. There comes a point in time where Lazarus, the brother, becomes uh, desperately ill and uh, even uh, on his deathbed. And, and all of this is happening in the city of Bethany. And when the sisters realize that this is more than a common cold or more than something that he's going to get over, they send messengers to Jesus who is at that point in time 20 miles away from Bethany in a region known as Bethabara where John the Baptist conducted his uh, baptisms and his ministry. They send the messengers the 20 miles. It would have taken them a day to get there with the news 
to Jesus of the fact that the, this man that he loved was very near death. And surely attached with that particular piece of information that they brought to Jesus was the expectation that immediately upon hearing it, he would drop everything, leave Bethabara, go to Bethany and heal their brother while there was still time. Instead, Jesus doesn't go to Bethany and not only does he not go to Bethany, but he delays two days in the place where he is. He doesn't move at all. And the reason that he doesn't go to Bethany is he knows what even the messengers didn't know at that moment in time. And that is that Lazarus was already dead. That Lazarus had died in the time that it took the messengers to leave Bethany and come to Bethabara. And Jesus, knowing who he was uniquely in human history and what he was uniquely in human history and is, that um, it, he didn't need to get there urgently now, that it's as easy for him to raise a person from the dead when they've been dead for one day or they've been dead for four days. I think one of the reasons for his delay in going, because he talks about all of this being done in the way that it was done, because it's very confusing in the natural when you look at it and you say, this doesn't make any sense, there's got to be a bigger picture that they're operating under. And the bigger picture is, this whole thing is about bringing glory to God the Father. And also bringing glory to Jesus and the recognition that He is the Son of God. And, and so, God allows... Lazarus to go from the place, very serious place of life and death illness, to the place of uh, death in order that Jesus would then come on the scene, raise him from the dead, because there is something about Jesus' power to raise someone from the dead that is even superior to what we learn about him in raising people from the sick bed. Both of them are terrific, but both of them reveal different things to us about Christ. So Jesus lets him die. He's dead. Not only is he dead, but he's been buried for four days before he shows up. If Jesus showed up like um, two hours after he died, then people might walk away from it. There's so much unbelief directed toward Jesus at that time, and, and still even to this day, that people would have the tendency to say, well, Lazarus didn't really die. He probably just was sick, and Jesus kind of uh, resuscitated him a little bit. Jesus waits until he's been dead for four days. It is indisputable. Uh, even after the miracle, as you get into verses 45 and beyond, even the religious leaders did not dispute the miracle that Jesus did here. Martha, was, her, Lazarus' sister, was very convinced and sure of Lazarus' death. When Jesus comes on the scene and he orders the stone to be removed so that he can then raise Lazarus from the dead, she doesn't know he's going to do it at that point in time. But she declares to him, as he's been dead for four days in that Mediterranean climate, and the Jews 2,000 years ago, and the Jews yet today in Israel today, they bury their dead on the day that a person dies. And so uh, there's no embalming, there's none of that kind of thing. So after four days in a Mediterranean climate, uh, in the words of, of Martha in the old King James, she protests and she says, Lord, by now he stinketh. And I love, I love the English, how they write things. And uh, the old King James on that, he was 
plenty dead, and so the miracle, there could be no disputing of it in, in, as a result of, of Jesus' uh, delay here. So this resurrection that Jesus does, as I said, there's something, this whole uh, passage is included in the Word of God because what is revealed in Jesus in his healing of people is one thing, is a wonderful thing, but what is revealed in his ability to raise the dead is something even greater. And it's something that uh, God wants us to understand about his Son. Notice Jesus' words, his self-description to Martha upon entering Bethany there in verses 25 and, and 26. Let me give you a little recap of of what's happening there. Martha, again, she learns that Jesus has come into the region of Bethany, so she goes out to meet him before he even gets into the city, verse 20. And then in verse 21, she first words out of her mouth is, Lord, if you had only been here, if you had only gotten here on time, then my brother wouldn't have died. And yet I, I know that whatever you ask God, God will give it to you. In verse 23, Jesus uh, assures her that Lazarus is going to rise again. Now, she believes that. She just doesn't know that Jesus is talking about today, (laughs) Uh, within the hour. And uh, so she uh, acknowledges the fact, verse 24, Yes, I know that my brother is going to, you know, resurrect and rise from the dead on the last day. And she believed the teaching of the Pharisees of of that, of that day, that one day the righteous would be raised from the dead and that they would enter into heaven. Now, in response to all of that, Jesus declares to Martha concerning himself, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. One of the greatest declarations Jesus made in all of the scriptures concerning himself that he was and is the resurrection and the life. And he is communicating that he has absolute authority over this thing called death. You notice that he does not say, I know the way to everlasting life. He does not say, I know the secret to everlasting life. He doesn't say that I point people to the way of everlasting life. He doesn't even say, I perform resurrections. He declares that everlasting life and victory over death are found in Him. And that victory is accessed by mankind through a personal relationship with Him. He's communicating to Martha, Martha, resurrection, victory over death, everlasting life. They are not found in some future event. They are not found in some place. They are not found in some future time. They are found in me. They are found in me here, today, now. I am not merely some teacher about resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. And resurrection is the interruption of death. That's what resurrection is. It is the interruption of death. It is the interruption of its reign. And true life, the life that Jesus is talking about here, is the life that he gives to mankind that cannot be impacted by death. It cannot be interrupted 
by death. It lies beyond the reach of, of, of death. I am able, Jesus is saying, to interrupt death, its reign. I am able to give a life to human beings that cannot be interrupted by death. Death has no power over it. Now what that means for you and I as Christians, he proceeds to tell us in verse 25 also. He said, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And in this he is speaking very specifically to Martha's situation. He is talking about Lazarus. And, and he's making a specific promise because he's going to reference it. He's going to point in verse 40. He's going to point her back to what he's saying here in, in verse 25. And he is making a specific promise to raise her brother Lazarus from the dead. Now in verse 26, when Jesus declared... And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He is making that promise to every single Christian who has lived all the way down through the ages. Including every single Christian that sits in this room here today. There are two requirements. Number one, uh, you have to live. So check your pulse rate and nudge the person next to you. And the second requirement is, I've got to be living, I've got to be on this side of eternity. And number two, I have to have believed in Christ. If I am alive and I have put my faith in Christ as my Savior, Jesus' promise to us is that we will never die. One of the fascinating things to study in the Bible is the subject of death. It's, really, it's actually fairly perky. But um, it is an interesting subject. And one of the fascinating things is you study the subject of death, and especially as it relates to the Christian, is to look at um, the difficulty that the authors of the New Testament, even inspired by the Holy Spirit, the difficulty they had in describing the death of a Christian in human terms. You take the Apostle Paul off the graph brilliant as a human being even before he came to Christ he's recognized even in secular circles in terms of history as one of the most brilliant men that has ever lived tremendous vocabulary and you add to that the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon his life and even in this you see him struggling with how to communicate the death of a Christian with human language and, you, and some of the different words that he uses to try and convey it's death but it's not death and it's kind of like this one of the words that he uses is for, for death of the Christian is that it is a departing Philippians chapter 1 for I am hard pressed he said between the two having a desire to depart to be with Christ which is far better he describes the death of a Christian as being absent from the body Present with the Lord. Second Corinthians, he, he wrote to them and he said, We are confident yet, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He describes death, he even tries to describe it in the terms of sleep and having fallen asleep in Christ. Again, to the Corinthians he wrote, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ 
have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are uh, of all men the most pitiable. And one of the reasons for the struggle behind trying to describe what happens to a Christian at the time of death is the limitation of human language. Because the English word that we use for death, the word death, it does not accurately describe what happens to a Christian when we die. Because the word that we use, this word death, as it's used so commonly in the culture so often, it means that a person has ceased to exist. But the most accurate term that could be used to describe the death of a Christian is not that we have died, but something has happened, and that something that has happened is that we have moved. No Christian ever dies. No Christian ever ceases to exist. Not for a moment. Not for a nanosecond. But we do move. And the Bible teaches that we move from this earthly house, this tent, which is what this body is described. A tent is a temporary dwelling place. So the Bible teaches the fact that we, we do move from this earthly house, this tent, and we move into a new body, and a body that is eternal. It's been fashioned for heaven. It's been made for heaven, made for eternity. So in the words of the Holy Spirit, this corruption, this thing that rots, puts on incorruption. This mortal, this thing that is destined to die, it puts on immortality. Paul describes it this way in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this body we groan. If you don't groan yet because of your body, you will groan one day because of your body. You will learn what it means to to roll out of bed in a wide variety of ways, based upon whatever joint is hurting, propping up on the elbows, shifting this out over here. If you have any background in athletics, your condition will be even worse. But So, in this body we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, our new body which is from heaven. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed or disembodied spirit, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Therefore, we are always confident knowing that while we're at home in this body, we're absent from the Lord. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and thus to be present with the Lord. We live in a very interesting country. It's a very, you know, well, up. Until about a year or two ago, so many people had so much money they didn't know what to do with it. I mean, money just being spent on crazy, crazy kind of stuff sometimes. And this culture that we live in is so superficial that it'll give us all kinds of superficial things to spend money on. But we, we live in a superficial culture in terms of how we even look at one another, how we view life, how we view one another. And so often we look at one another and we think that we can really know something about another person based upon the tent, based upon the body. But this tent is not who I am. Who I am and who you are, but who I am is inside of this body. All this body is is a means by which God has given me for the real me inside to express myself. 
The tent is nothing compared to the real person that's inside. You take me, and you take the real me who is inside of this body, and you put me inside of Pastor Franz. Then go up and try and have a conversation with Pastor Franz, expecting Pastor Franz. You'll say, it looks like Pastor Franz. But it acts and it talks and all these things like, Pastor Damien, I'm confused. And if you did the same thing, vice versa, with Franz coming into me. Who we are and what we really are inside, that's, that's the real us. That's the dominating issue. And, and, and that's what the body is, is there for. So it, 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 the, uh, this is the deeper way of, of looking at it. And at the moment of, of death, as a Christian... Who and what I am doesn't cease to exist. The real me inside this body simply moves. No Christian ceases to exist at the moment of death, not for a second, not for a moment. The relationship with Jesus Christ won't be interrupted. The, re the reception won't even get hazy, not even for a split second as we move from this life into the life to come. No Christian ever dies, but we do move. And the Bible teaches that Jesus' victory over sin and over death and over hell has reduced this enemy called death, the life of a Christian, to a butler, to a servant in our lives. What does a butler do? I don't happen to have a butler, but I've seen some movies where they have butlers and stuff like that. He's got this great mansion, this great manor, the great grounds associated with it. You walk up to the front door and you're on the front step and, and you knock on the door and a butler comes to the door. And what does the butler do? The butler ushers you from the doorstep into the mansion, from the, the one environment that is inferior into the superior environment. And so that's all that a butler does. And at the moment of death and the life of a Christian, we are simply ushered by death out of the tent of this physical body and into the new body that's been made for eternity. And one day if the Lord tarries and He doesn't rapture us before that day, one day there'll come the point in time where death will draw very, very near to me and actually come upon me. And what death will do will come just as my servant, not as an enemy, as a servant, and say, Damien, let's get you out of that old tent that's breaking down and let me usher you in to the new body that God has for you for eternity. I like what Charles Erdman said related to this. He said, what we call death today is merely an incident in the course of an endless life. I like that. Puts it in perspective. An incident in the course of an endless life. A Christian never dies. And Jesus wants us to be confident of this. And why don't we die? Because our Savior is the resurrection and the life. Now, if you were just a spiritual blowhard, or just some religious teacher that yada, 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 blah, 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 just talking about stuff and you don't know whether it's true about you or true about life, the last place in the world you're going to declare yourself to be the resurrection and the life 
is within a stone's throw of a cemetery. Because you make yourself vulnerable then for someone in the crowd to say, Hey, if you're Mr. Resurrection and the Life, can we go over to the cemetery here and can you prove it? And yet Jesus declares himself by design to be the resurrection and the life within a stone's throw of a cemetery. And we'll, as we'll see, he'll, we'll find he's fully able to back up his words. Now the second thing I want us to notice in verse 35 is Jesus' tears. As he's brought to Lazarus' tomb, he begins to weep. Verse 35 is the shortest verse in the English Bible. Jesus wept. So if you have a hard time memorizing Scripture, it's a great place to start. Prime the pump, get our confidence up. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. It's interesting that the Bible only records two times in Jesus' life and in his public ministry when he wept. He publicly wept twice. The first time that he wept was following his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. As he's making his way into the city and a large crowd is lining both sides of the street and they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're acknowledging him as the Messiah. But as he makes his way into the city of Jerusalem and he makes this triumphant entry on the very day that was prophesied by the prophet Daniel. You can't give people more of a heads up than to give them the very day that the Messiah is going to come. And Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem proper, the larger context of it, and it just was going on about its business like this was no, no day at all, no big deal. The unveiling of their Messiah, they met it with a, a stunning indifference shown to Jesus. And as Jesus is met with that, he begins to weep over the city. And he begins to weep because he recognizes all of the things that are going to happen to the Jewish people because of their failure to recognize him as the promised Messiah. And the Greek word that is used in that passage for Jesus' weeping means to sob convulsively he broke down and he began to sob and to weep in a way that his whole body was racked with his weeping you look at him from behind or from the side and his whole body is engaged in the grief that he's expressing it's interesting that in this passage a different Greek word is used for his crying and the word that is used here means to weep silently. It means to be crying when nobody else knows that you're crying. The tears are just pouring down your face and then off of your face. And unless you had looked sideways over to look at Jesus in the face, you would have never known that he was crying. But the tears were streaming down his face. And we ask ourselves, why in the world was he crying? Some people might say, well, he was crying for Lazarus. It couldn't be. He knows that he's going to raise Lazarus within the next couple of minutes. What Jesus was weeping about in this entire scene was the very 
existence of death. Jesus knew in a way that none of the rest of them really knew. And that is when God created mankind and put us in the Garden of Eden in the form of Adam and Eve, God's original intention in creation was that no human being would ever die and that not a single one of us would ever experience the death of a loved one. But that death and all of the grief concerning death was introduced into the human condition by Adam and Eve through their sin in the garden. And Paul puts it so concisely in the New Testament, in Adam all die. (laughs) That's known as clarity. When Jesus looks at all of these people weeping and mourning the loss of Lazarus, his mind is filled with the knowledge that God never intended this to be so, and so he wept. And his heart just full of compassion and sympathy toward us because of the consequences of the fall that we bear. And this is one of the challenges that we face as human beings in in this world. Because God created us, in a way that we were never intended to experience death, we do not have the software to process it. And that's why when it comes near to us in our own lives, or it comes into our lives through the death of a loved one, it hits us in a way that no other fear or no other loss hits us in life. And it is the reason why in the course of our lifetimes and in the course of dealing with death in in our lifetimes, we need to have God in our lives to help us process death properly because we cannot in and of ourselves. Notice that Jesus was able... uh, to bring to this scene of death, though, more than tears, more than sympathy, more than compassion, though we're thankful for all of that, but he also possessed an absolute authority over death that he brought to this funeral. Jesus broke up every funeral he went to. Every one of me performed a resurrection. In. And it demonstrates... In this raising of Lazarus from the dead here, it demonstrates his power. But it's not just Jesus looking and saying, you know, cracking his knuckles and saying, wait till they see this. It isn't just this mindless, uh, thoughtless demonstration of power. He's made the claim concerning his life that he is the resurrection and the life. But now he is going to give that entire audience and everyone that reads this passage all the way through to this day the evidence that we need to recognize that this man doesn't just talk about this stuff, but he backs it up with his life. He has the power to to stand behind the truthfulness of what it is that he says about himself. So, verse 39 He orders the stone covering the tomb to be removed. Then in verse 41, he prays to the Father. And in this prayer to the Father, don't skip over it. 
He reveals in that prayer the whole reason behind the miracle He's about to do. And the whole reason, he says, he says in essence to the Father, Father, I don't pray to you right now because I, I have some, I, you know, I lack the confidence that you hear me or that this miracle is going to happen. He said, Father, I pray to you now so that those listening to my prayer, when you do this miracle, they will believe you to be who you claim to be, and they will also believe me to be who I uh, claim to be, and they will then trust in me as their Savior as a result of the miracle. And then he cried out, we're told, with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now, if you had any doubt in your ability to raise the dead, you wouldn't cry out with a loud voice. If this was me with my very evident uh, finiteness, and I said, well, I'm the resurrection and the life and the whole thing. When I finally got in front of a tomb, I said, I'd mumble it so that only two people near me could, you know, hear, have heard what I said. And if it happened, then great, I could use them as witnesses. If it didn't happen, I'd kill them to keep my prophetic ministry going. But Jesus doesn't have it. He has no doubt that this is going to happen. Lazarus come forth. And then as has been wonderfully noted related to this passage, all the way back to St. Augustine, when he declared that it was a good thing that Jesus said, Lazarus come forth and not just come forth, because if he had just said come forth, he would have emptied out all of Abraham's bosom. There would have been a line forming. We would have to order in sandwiches or something. But he said, Lazarus come forth, and only Lazarus came uh, forth. And then Jesus instructed those who were around to loose him of his grave clothes. And the Jews would, would basically, when they would bury someone, because he's coming out hopping some way, and uh, so they would, from the neck down, they would wrap you with, with strips of cloth. You know, picture the mummy a little bit. And, uh, and then they would put a cloth, just a single cloth, over the face. So he comes hopping out of this thing in that condition, and Jesus, listen, he, again, he did all the heavy lifting, he did the resurrection, he won't do what man can do now on the scene, and so he says, go ahead and take the, take the cloth, uh, the, the, the burial cloths uh, off of him. It's interesting to notice in the Gospels that we have many, many records of Jesus' healing people of their diseases. I mean, so many. Jesus not only healed an innumerable number of people, but, but he went into cities more than once and healed everyone in the whole city of their illnesses and the whole countryside around the city. But this demonstration of his authority over death, the form of resurrection by raising someone from the dead, is only recorded that he did it three times in the scriptures. Once was raising the son of the widow in Nain. The other time was raising the 12-year-old daughter of a ruler in the synagogue. And then this raising of Lazarus here. And surely the reason that Jesus didn't do it more had nothing to do with a lack of power on his part related to this. But rather it had to be due to some kind of a hesitation on his part to take a Christian from the indescribable peace and joy and wonderfulness of eternity and to bring him back into this. Can you imagine when Lazarus got word? Hey, Lazarus, they're calling you back. They're calling me back? 
Do I get to vote? Now, I'm just saying we don't, we don't know that Lazarus is going to do anything God wants to do. But that when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it wasn't for Lazarus' sake. It was for the sake of his family. And it was for the sake of the multitude of witnesses that were around that tomb on that day. And it was for your sake, the sake of your faith and my faith, sitting in this room today, that we would recognize this power and authority of Jesus over death. Never, ever, ever trust in any so-called Savior or any so-called Lord or God or guru or teacher or philosophy concerning your eternity who does not address, number one, the subject of death and then, number two, has not publicly demonstrated their power and authority over death. And if you take that and make that the requirement and the criteria for who you make your Savior in this world, you will be left having just one standing in front of you in human history. And that's the Lord Jesus himself, for only he has done that. Sometimes when I'm officiating at a memorial service, I'll ask the people, I said, have you ever thought as you're, you know, coming here today, maybe one or two of you thought, I wonder what the service would be like today if Jesus was officiating the service. And I let them know from this passage that the interesting thing is, sometimes we can look and say, I wonder if Jesus was officiating at the service. I wonder what he would do and I wonder what he would say. And the fact of the matter is, if Jesus was officiating at a service, we don't have to wonder what he would do and what he would say. Because we're told here in the passage what he would do and what he would say. The first thing he would do is he would weep with us. He has great compassion on us. Our own lives and the lives of others as we face death. But he wouldn't stop there. He would then go on to declare to us from the Bible what it is. He would declare himself to be the resurrection and the life and he would call on us to put our faith in him as our personal Savior. And that is why this miracle was accomplished by Jesus. Not for Lazarus' sake, but so that as a result of this, his unique power and authority, you will believe in him as your personal Lord and Savior. That's why the miracle is recorded in the book. Death is an enemy of man. We need a victory over death. Jesus has provided us with more than just talk. He has demonstrated his authority over death. He is the resurrection and the life. And he who lives and believes in him shall never die. That's his promise. That's his offer. Let's pray together.
Thank you, Father, for what is revealed to us in this passage concerning our Savior. So many of us, Lord, and you know our hearts before we ever came to know you. We didn't need a sermon to wake us up to death. We were concerned about it very early in life and recognized the need that what about this and, and what's going to happen here and what's the solution to this? Why is this in the human condition? All these questions, Lord. And you use this whole issue of death and Jesus' victory over it to bring hope into our lives and to bring us to a faith in him. Lord, we pray that that same work of your Holy Spirit would be present in this room this morning. I want to just ask as we continue in a spirit of prayer this morning.